and welcome again to the wonderful podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories that we call Hunter Gatherers. And thanks again to David Amram for playing us in with uh, my old Kentucky home. Very appropriate. We're in Kentucky. My name is Curtis Robinson. I'm your host. I'm here with the wonderful producer and co-host, Christopher, Christopher Tidmore. Yes, there you go. And uh, we have a special guest. Oh, we do. We do. We've got someone with a Ph.D. in HST. I have to say that when you decide to become doctor off of Dr. Thompson, you have come even further in our estimation. John Brick is one of the leading academic experts on Hunter S. Thompson. He is the man, ladies and gentlemen, who came together and actually looked at the various versions and elements of the Vegas book and found out which was when and how they changed. His dissertation, which I am begging him, begging him to have done to the point where I'm offering my publishing company to be able to publish this. It is a perfect this. It includes chapters from Tom Wolf as he was looking at the book, various versions. And so with no further ado, Dr. John Brick, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me here at Gonzo Fest which 2023, is, the tenth and final, which we keep hearing over and over, and we're not, <laughs> we're not entirely convinced. And, but that is the ambient noise, folks. You're hearing in the background. So let me ask you: one of the questions we get is, what was the reaction that came down when you said, "I'm going to do an academic dissertation on Hunter S. Thompson"? Was there, would you say, overwhelming support in an English department? It, to, to the credit of my dissertation qualifying exam committee, nobody batted an eye when I suggested that this would be the, the course of my work. But as, as you mentioned, the, the, the final version of this project, the, the centerpiece of it is this annotated variorum, right? So the, the variorum being the, the fancy academies for tracking changes across multiple versions of a text. And of course, annotations are annotations. But uh, even though that is the centerpiece of the finished work, uh, that was, at the time when I was just getting started, that was a side project. And um, really? I, I really? mentioned this to my, my committee as something that I was interested in pursuing and, and working on sort of as a sideline. And they gently reminded me that I should focus on the sort of the more traditional form of the dissertation, the, the, the monograph, the, the chapters of, of dense academic prose, um, they certainly didn't that discourage... no one would ever, ever read. <laughs> so, uh, forgive me, I, as I'm a refugee from higher education, and uh, I was so good at it, I decided to go into journalism. <laughs> I, I literally had Stephen Ambrose talk me out of getting my PhD, <laughs> and not because he didn't think I could do it. He just actually said, you, you have a problem, Christopher, you, you want to write for people who actually want to read, you know. But... You actually did something I, I find extraordinary. Even though there is, is serious academic work, what you do, John Brick, is you wrote something that people would actually find interesting to read. The annotations of what caused these comments, what these thought of. You got Johnny Depp in your repeatedly commenting on this as the person who played it. it is, this is not your average dissertation. I, I find it difficult to spend time and mental energy writing something that I would not want to read. The, hmm. So you don't actually want tenure, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I should I should say for 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 the benefit of all listening, um, there there is some dense academies in this this dissertation. I couldn't get away from that. The annotated variorum is sandwiched between two sort of traditionally dense prose bookends that do kind of the more academically formal thing, right? We, we have the literature review, that kind of the survey of, of scholarship and, and trying to contextualize this within um, broader areas of active literary inquiry. Um, but, but really, yeah, the, the beating heart of this is the, the annotated variorum. And it, it came about in, in sort of a more organic way than perhaps your run-of-the-mill dissertation, if there is such a thing. When I was... Mm, much younger and much less academically astute. A cousin of mine had come to to stay with our family for for a while, and he introduced me to the film. So I did it backwards. I saw the film before I read the book, but... I wouldn't call it backwards. I would actually say that that's the common way that anybody under the age of, say, 45... I certainly don't beat myself up about it uh, uh, nowadays. But... I was intrigued by some of the more obviously literary sequences in the film, and very... When you saw the film, you're like, well, goodness, that's an obvious literary reference. What, what, what were those? Seeing the film for the first time was like being introduced to a color that I'd never seen before. There was something about the cadence of the narration and the quality of the images, even though the film does... a. a really remarkable job of, of translating some of Thompson's prose into visual imagery. Just the, the, the narration itself brought me into the words of it. And I immediately went out and found the book and I got about two-thirds of the way through it before I said, I gotta slow down. I wanna savor the reading of it. Something in it, I, I'd never found a book before that clicked with my brain the way Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas did. And I've spent an early career sort of enmeshed in his prose, and I still couldn't tell you exactly why his style, his rhythms, the the music of his prose just lit up my brain the way that it did. But I I had an uncle who uh, had... I think I don't know how he found out, but somehow he got word that I was digging into to Thompson. And one day I was at his house—I don't know—family gathering or something. And he just sort of casually said, "You know, I've got Rolling Stones from that era. I have the original Rolling Stone editions with Fear and Loathing in it. Would you like them?" Uh, uh yeah. <laughs> And he, he disappeared for five minutes and came back with a kind of a, a plastic grocery bag that had these two copies, old extant copies of Rolling Stone. Point that he had, he had published them, <coughs> excuse me, under Raoul Duke? Well, I, like I said, right, I came at it, maybe not backwards, right, but I, I, I saw the film, then read the book, and so I was, I was okay, I figured it out, right? There's a, a, in fact, the copy of Vegas that you have on the table here, that, was, that, that exact edition was my first edition that I, had, that I had picked up, and it's got Hunter S. Thompson right on the, right on the top there, so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't under any illusions as to the, the sort of the provenance of the, of the text. And, you know, the internet was still a thing at the time, so I could, you know, click around and... and but at the time of uh, the book... To publish it under Raoul Duke, the feeling uh, among some was that Hunter was well known by uh, Rolling Stone, and they were they were doing the book. 
I guess they did it under straight arrow. But that Hunter Thompson would be considered too old. Hmm. And that Raul Duke would be considered youthful, someone they didn't know, someone that was, was, was more uh, off that as opposed to Hunter, who was a known quantity. I think at the time, I had read his, his passage, I think it's the jacket copy, right? Because as soon as I finished Vegas... It, the jacket copy for Fear and Loathing is is justification for Western civilization. It's fantastic. It, it, as, as I mean, if you can encapsulate Gonzo in one passage that Thompson himself wrote, that's that's probably the closest you're going to get to it. Let me, let me bring that on. So you appeared at the panel for those... Just joining us, I'm so in radio, of course we'll have plenty. We're doing this, the background noise of Gonzo Fest. People were excited after your panel because you were posed a question. An impossible question. Define Gonzo. <laughs> and uh, Curtis, who spent hours, days, weeks, months with Hunter, was not on that panel, but I could watch him laughing as you just <laughs> had this whole moment. So you were actually, though, asked by your academic committee... Please define Gonzo as part of this. Well, they, they reminded me that the responsible scholarly thing to do is, you know, as you're, you know, the early part of the of a dissertation is you've, you've got to sort of clear your throat as an academic and, and lay out the parameters of what you're diving into. And they generously reminded me that I'm going to have to, you know, include this in my early, the, you know, the, uh, one of the early chapters, probably the first chapter, right? You're going to have to to explain for your reader exactly what what the term gonzo defines what it means what it is and i i responded to that thinking okay easy enough right there's there had been this uh, at the time maybe 10 maybe 15 years of um a resurgence of academic interest in, in Thompson. Uh, and books had been published and articles were coming out and, and Thompson was becoming a, a sort of a renewed object of focus in academia. And I thought, okay, great. This is a survey of the literature. We'll see what all the, all the smart people have to say about what Gonzo is. And maybe I'll, maybe, maybe I'll distill it, right? How did that work out for you? It didn't. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine if I could, that. If I could um, comprehensively and, and thoroughly and... Uh, cleanly define what Gonzo is, I, I, I'd probably already have books published by now. <laughs> well, I always end up, uh, I've, I've spoken to students before about this, and I get the question a lot of what's the difference between, between new journalism and Gonzo, and I'm like, well, I'll deal. Uh, you know, Tom Wolf went to uh, San Francisco, got to know a lot of people, and wrote, wrote about people who did acid, and Hunter Thompson went out to San Francisco and took the acid <laughs> and wrote about it. That yeah, is, uh, and I think that's a pretty good transition because the panel you were just on talked about it. It mentioned the friendship with Tom Wolf, which you've spent a lot of time investigating. I want to get into that, but I thought that was an interesting part because it was talking about the Hell's Angels book that he frequently Tom Wolf and uh, Hunter would send copies of it. Hunter sends the audio tape of a gang rape to Tom Wolf. Because of the entire day. Of the entire day. Because he doesn't think that Wolf is actually being brutal enough in his writing about Kool-Aid acid test. Well, I mean, yeah, because, because uh, that's the difference between participation and, and observation. I mean, the thing about Hunter is he had that ability to observe from within the thing as opposed to, to not within the thing. And... You know, I think other people, I mean, and, and part of that discussion was fascinating because it was like, is Gonzo just Hunter Thompson or is it something that will go on before or, or that was before and that will go on after? And, you know, and of course, I, I come down very much on the idea that it'll come after. I mean, 
you know, uh, the late great PJ O'Rourke, God love him. I, he's, you know, he made a living from it. Uh, I was constantly compared to that. I think he did a good job on it. He he made a great distinction, though. He said, you know, Hunter went to normal, common things like the Kentucky Derby and showed the bizarreness where he went to bizarre things like Beirut and showed, you know, the commonness. I mean, P.J. O'Rourke was all about, you know, how do you get a decent martini in a war zone? Uh, but, you know, I, th- I think that when, 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 you, when you go through it at that detail, a book like that, and I know a lot about the the construction of it. I even tried to find that motel that he said he held up in uh, with the with the swimming pool. I may have found it. Uh, how how did you how did you come into what were the biggest surprises? I guess is the journalistic question. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Well, the you know when I when I when I got these copies these original copies this old newsprint i sat down and i thought i'm going to i'm going to read it as someone in 1971 read it i'm going to be able to you know my my eyes to that page and i opened it up and by the time i got to the bottom of the first page i noticed hey some of this stuff in rolling stone is not what wound up in the random house book and as I kept reading, I kept noticing sort of more and more uh, variances. So I thought, okay, but I got, I got to the end of it, and I thought, all right, I got to sit down and track a bunch of these changes. And I went through, I went through word for word, character for character, tracing the differences between the Random House book and the Rolling Stone version. And that opened up... That is such a gonzo thing to do. Well, That's like Hunter topping the... Gatsby and stuff. <laughs> There's something OCD about us all, but go ahead. A little bit, yeah, a little. Well, but that that opened up uh, f- further questions, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, I like like any good dutiful student of of Thompson, I, I poured over his volumes of letters, and um, I, you know, read with great interest his correspondence with Tom Wolfe, and. Uh, for a completely unrelated academic project, I found myself in the New York Public Library, uh, the, the Manhattan branch, and I was looking at some of their archived materials, and I said, hey, they've got Tom Wolfe's papers here. Wouldn't it be great to read the actual letter where Thompson writes uh, to Wolfe uh, when Wolfe is on his, his Italian tour and... and, and uh, you know, threatens him with with uh, grave bodily violence if if Wolf mentions Thompson's name. Into a yeah, you're, 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 you're make you wish you were born a fucking iguana, right? something like that. So I, it's one of my one of my favorite uh, letters. So I, I go I, I go over to uh, you know the, they've got the, the the reading room right this this beautiful beautiful room, um, and I make my requests at the archives to see such and such a thing and. Um, you know, Tom Wolfe's papers are there, and they, they bring out a few boxes worth of correspondence. And I'm, I'm sifting through, and, and I found it. I found the, the iguana letter, and I'm, I'm, I'm loving it, right? And then I found the letter that um, Thompson sent to Wolfe saying, hey, I'm working on this Vegas thing. And if you, if you, if you read um, the, the volume of correspondence, Fear and Loathing in America, I think, is, is the volume. There is uh, a reference in one of the letters to the fact that Thompson is sending an early chunk of the Vegas thing. 
So I'm reading this letter, and I thought, oh, that's, that's fascinating. And I turn over a couple more pages, and there it is. The fair copy typescript of the first 6,000 or so words, which, for all my digging around in scholarship, I hadn't seen anybody even make a reference to the fact that this exists. So now I've got three versions. Now I've got the Random House book, I've got Rolling Stone, and I've got an early draft of the first, essentially, three chapters. An of early it. draft he felt comfortable sending to Tom Wolfe, which is interesting, too. I felt like Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you know, I, it, I don't think it's, it's proper protocol to, to jump up and let out a yell and pump your fist in the air in the, in the reading room of the uh, New York Public Library archives, but the temptation was there, I tell you what. And I just completely, completely fast. So, okay, so. I was about to say that would be the ultimate gonzo moment, holding up a fist in the New York Public Library, but. Yeah, I, I, I had a moment reflecting in the immediate aftermath whether my, my academic career had peaked here. Like, okay, this is it. This is, this is, uh, this is the best it's going to get. Now you've reconciled your fact that, to the fact that it did. It's not a bad thing to peak early. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm certainly not complaining. Uh, how, many, how many people, how many PhD students or you know, even tenured academics go their entire careers without finding something like that? Oh, sure. It's many just, gymnasts do their best work as teenagers. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about it. Go yeah. just work with what you have. But I, I have to say, it did get better because I had my, my, my three texts, three versions of at least you know, some portion of the Vegas book. But the more I dug into it, the more I, I sifted and explored, it became sort of manifest to me that I, I had to do that I was going to have to basically write a series of sort of non-academic, uh, sort of just sort of generally intelligible annotations to explain the kinds of things that I was, I was finding in the text. And so... What were the kind of things? Tell me what the kind of, the kind of well, things you well, noticed. Well, sure. So... One of the things that sort of in the early part of this process, um, just looking at the, the Rolling Stone magazine, when you, when, when, I don't know, somebody, some average schmuck who, you know, picks up the book at 16 is going to pick up a copy of the Random House text, right, which, which opens with Thompson's dedication and then it dives right into the text. The, the Rolling Stone version, or the, you know, if you, if you, if you were to go and, and open the pages of Rolling Stone, Fear and Loathing doesn't begin there. It begins with a full-page letter from the editor, from Jan Wenner, that contextualizes and explains and places Fear and Loathing sort of in the cultural moment, right? Comments on what it's doing. All of which was utterly fascinating to me, and I had never seen it. I'd never had the opportunity to see it because it's not uh, a part of any of the collections here, right? So at a certain point, I just I went to the bookstore... I bought the, you know, the, just the, the cheap copy of Fear and Loathing with, with Johnny Depp's distorted face on the cover from, from, the, uh, from the film. And I took highlighters, and I went through, I reread the whole thing, and every time I found something that I thought, I want to make a note on this, or there's something here that I want to investigate, I highlighted it, and I came away with a, a little over 500 little marks. And I put them all in a, in a kind of basically a spreadsheet list. And I just started researching, digging into as much as I could, could find, could pull out. And that's, that's really where some of the most interesting finds cropped up. 
if you were to pick up a copy of the Random House book, there's the, the sequence at the drug convention, and names are redacted. Right, there's, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's not the drug convention. It's the, um, the sequence right before the wave speech when he's talking about um, going up the mountain to talk to the acid guru. And the, in, in the Random House version, there's a doctor, but we don't get the name, it's doctor, and then there's just a long dash. And there's an asterisk, and it said, you know, name deleted at the insistence of publishers. Well, there are no redacted names in the Rolling Stone version. And once you have a name and something as simple, often, as Google, you can start patching information together. And that's where you can find the name of Dr. Robert Dirop, who was a biochemist uh, by, by training and published The Master Game, Pathways to Higher Consciousness Beyond the Drug Experience. Now, if you're reading this in 1971, especially in the Bay Area, you might know this name. You might know this reference. You might know something of this figure. And if you don't, there are ways to find this out. But if all you've ever seen is the Random House book with the redacted names, all of that is lost. Right? And so what Thompson is doing here is he's, he's, he's naming this, this figure as sort of you know, the, the, the LSD guru of the area. Right? He's, he's invoking, as he says, a, a very special time and place, something very specific here. And that is lost completely in the book version because of the redacted names. Something similar in the, at the DA's convention in, in Vegas. Um, there's another redacted name, one of the, one of the speakers. Um, or, you know, the name itself might not even be redacted, but uh, we, we have the name of, of Bloomquist, um, which, is, which is mentioned. Uh, and you can, you can track down, you can find out who exactly Bloomquist was, what he wrote, his books on the... Most of the changes that you found between these were, were most of them like that? Were most of them word changes? Were there, were there areas where you saw like paragraphs and pages that changed? Most of them were very small. Um, to rewrite? He didn't, no. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the fair copy typescript, there are, there are handwritten emendations where you could see he's, he's gone back and he's changed, um, he, he changed the style of Dr. Gonzo's sunglasses. Or, um, oh, see, I would find that interesting beyond belief. Sure. You, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the Spanish wraparound sunglasses or, or whatever it is, right, were originally something a little bit different, right? Um, I think that the, maybe the cut or the material of, his, of, of Gonzo's pants, right, were a little bit different. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm wondering... Does it make that much of a difference, right? Especially if you're trying to get this out kind of, kind of quickly. Why make such a, such a small change? And, um, I mean, there's no way to know for sure, but I think, it's, I think he's making minuscule emendations to the music and the cadence of his prose. You would say the difference between the right word and the nearly right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning exactly bug. Exactly right. Exactly. I, I, that's, uh, that very uh, quote shows up. In, in my dissertation, t talking about kind of the same thing. But there are redactions for, uh, in, in um, or I shouldn't say redactions because one came before the other, but there are pieces that are in the book that are not in the, uh, the Rolling Stone version. Right? The, the Gonzo's famous bathtub freakout is missing from the Rolling Stone version. 
And why was it cut? Was it written after uh, and then inserted into the book? Was it originally written and then it was cut for space because you've only got a certain amount of space when you work? I don't know. But it's interesting to see how taking something like that out changes the, if you will, the music of the prose, or it changes kind of the, 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 the rhythm of the, the whole composition. Um, so again, most changes are, are small, minor tweaks. Um, so occasionally you have passages that are, that are missing. There are, there are occasional references to drugs in particular that don't show up in the book, where I think he could probably get away with publishing something like that in Rolling Stone that he would not necessarily want coming out of a, a, a major national uh, book publisher. Well, I mean, when I get into it, and we've discussed this off air, yes, later in his life, Hunter was very hesitant to ever do any rewrites. But Curtis had told me, and you've told me many times as his editor, you're like, he would go through and be meticulous about his writing. And I thought this whole myth that Hunter Thompson only did one draft, it, it's, it's an injustice to the man. And also... I mean, it was, they were talking about it in the latter years, that, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that anybody at that point was editing Hunter, but, but you have to realize that I think what happened is a lot of the, uh, he was a newspaper guy at heart and a hot top journalist, if you will. So a lot of his editing he did in real time as he was writing. I mean, when he would finish a page or something, we, we would go back. It's not like we were going to follow the rule of finish your first draft. No, we were going to go back and we were going to work on that page. Until we got that page right, it was a living hell sometimes because you couldn't get off that page because he couldn't find the word that would get him off the page. I mean, we looked for three days for a word that he was looking for that meant the same as posh, but wasn't posh. And there was not a safe thesaurus within 500 miles of Aspen, Colorado, but we, he couldn't get it, so we abandoned the piece. <laughs> and that's how much it meant to him. The, the lightning versus the lightning bug and it was uh, it was it was interesting and you know I had, I won bets with Hunter when he would say well he would quote himself and I would say well that's that's not what that's not what's in the book and he's like at first particularly would say well I think I know what I wrote and I said I'm sure you do but I know what they published <laughs> and you know sorry it's not there great example is he once wrote that uh, Something about he was essentially had the, the spirit, we'll say spirit, of a 13-year-old girl. And then he went on and uh, to, to, with that piece. And then, then when it was published, it was the, the spirit of a teenage girl. And I said, well, Hunter, you wouldn't, you wouldn't argue that's the same, would you? And he said, no, I wouldn't argue that's the same. Uh, however, that did appear next to a Ralph Steadman piece, a drawing that you could not put the words 13-year-old girl next to. So... There were reasons for that, and I think it's a microcosm of other things. I've said for a while, for all the biographies on Hunter, there is all the lit crit, you know, that, that is starting to come out in real uh, academic circles. The, the perfect biography of Hunter Thompson is a parallel literary biography of Thomas Wolfe, because they're kind of mirrors of each other in so many different ways. And I was intrigued. You're one of the first academic authors who really not only looked at this element, but really looked at Wolf and looked at their relationship. And can you talk about that a little bit from the standpoint? Because Curtis has always heard it from Hunter and, you know, about that relationship. You're seeing it from the words itself, sort of primary source evidence. 
there's thought going on. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> just, in, just encapsulate two of the greatest literary figures of the, uh, the second half of the 20th century. There is a way in which Thompson and Wolfe are sort of intersecting stars on very, very different trajectories. Right. Um, you, you had mentioned uh, Thompson sharing his, his recordings of, of La Honda, and, you know, they, 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 were, they were, for a moment, they were doing something very, very similar at a relatively similar sort of tier, if you will. Um, but I think the, the trajectory that, that Thompson was on, sort of the, the path of his, his rocket, if you will, was angled ultimately very differently from Wolf's. Um, but for that, for that moment when they are sort of in the same stratum, the, the way that they kind of bounce things off of each other, right, the way that they interact is, uh, by my lights, one of the sort of the, the most interesting encapsulations of if it means anything, sort of what the new journalism of the American 20th century, um, what it meant or what it was or, or, or how it behaved at that time. And that's, that's that in and of itself, that's a very limited view, right? Because we're, you know, we're not that far removed from Martha Gellhorn's war reporting, right? Joan Didion is, is in the conversation. Norman, Norman Mailer is, is kicking around, right? Um, but, you know, if, uh, if, if somebody put Thompson's magnum to my head and said, you know, what's in, a, in the, the smallest nutshell you can, um, what does the new journalism of the American 20th century look like? Um, I, I probably point them to the exchange of letters in, in the, the, the late 60s, very early 70s between the two of them, just in terms of style, in terms of focus, in terms of philosophy, right? I, I would... I would um, I would love to, to have them sit down and write their manifesto together on, you know, and, and have that as the preface for Wolf's volume of the new journalism. And of course, it's, you know... Um, you read those letters and you, and you see where the, the, the words, our energy would simply prevail. They felt that. I think they must have felt that way. Yeah. And, uh, and are there other, since that's a reference to the wave speech, it wasn't a speech, in the, but it, the wave... Uh, are there separate versions of that, or is that pretty much intact as one piece of writing? So, uh, Thompson used the same wave metaphor to describe uh, and, uh, what he calls the, that ill-fated summer of love in 1967 when he rewrites Freak Power in the Rockies. Um, he, he writes that the summer was a wild and incredible dope orgy here, but when winter came, the crest of that wave broke and drifted on the shoals of local problems such as jobs, housing, and deep snow on the roads to shacks that a few months earlier had been easily accessible. Um, so it's, it's not, uh, I didn't find any like versions of Vegas itself that were different, but there's, there are echoes in some of Thompson's other writing. There's a, um, Songs of the Doomed uh, from, from 1990. Uh, there's, there's something similar. He's, he, he writes, um, the whole concept of decades is wrong. That's why people have trouble with it. A decade is 10 years, which some people will tell you is about as long as a dime. The only people who still talk in terms of decades are Australians and possibly New Zealanders. 
But the Aussies will tell you that the New Zealanders think more in terms of 20 years like us. In politics, a generation is 20 years, 10 is not enough, time flies when you do most of your real work after midnight, five months can go by, and it feels like one sleepless night. There's, there's, there's a similarity there to kind of the way that he describes that, the, the wave motion, right? There's... Thompson, as, as I think you mentioned, he occasionally quotes himself, and if some occasionally there are things where if he's not quoting himself, it certainly rhymes. Yes, I, I think you're right. Yes. And I think that is the perfect place to call it. John Brick, we want to have you back. when we Actually, your book is more readily available, and you've got some things for the general public. We hope this level of ex- expertise... Is I actually want to leave uh, with one question. You're one of the only professors I know in the country who's actively trying to teach Thompson to his undergraduate students. Um, uh, we've had many others who are Thompson enthusiasts who are like, I can't quite figure out how to get it past X. How have you figured out how to get it past the, uh, the thing and, and introduce it to your students and not have some academic committee come down on you hard? Well, it helps that I don't have to clear my syllabi with any of the powers that be. That's uh, that's the, <laughs> the practical answer. Um, so we just outed you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, the, well, sort of one of the unintentional... Well, I shouldn't say unintentional because it, it's, in fact, very, very deliberate. But when I was starting out with the, the plan for writing this dissertation... Um, I didn't know that, that the annotated variorum was going to be a part of it. That came about fairly late in the game um, because I had sort of, in, you know, instead of writing the dense academies, I had spent more and more time fleshing out the, the, the variances between the texts and writing these annotations. And at a certain point, I just kind of showed what I'd been working on to my advisor, and he said, well why not have this as a major piece of your dissertation? And then I thought, oh my God, I'm going to actually finish this thing. Um, <laughs> but as I was getting deeper and deeper into the process, I realized that part of what I was actually doing was recapturing something for people of my generation, for people of my students' generation, and on into the future, who will never be able to read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in 1971 and who will have lost so much of the richness and the delicacy in the expressions, in the references, in the name drops. You know, why are we listening to Sympathy for the Devil and One Toke Over the Line simultaneously? And what are the, what, are, what, what is the meaning behind that? What are the, the valences of that? Someone as young as I am, right? I was, Fear and Loathing was 15 years old by the time I was born. And certainly of my students' generation, right? They, we, don't, we don't come to that naturally. We can't read it in its moment. And so it is an academic thing to do. It is kind of a pedantic thing to do. But it's also, I guess tooting my own horn here a little bit, it's also a valuable thing to do to go through in granular detail and say, here's what's going on in this passage. Here's what you might not know. Here's what this song was doing at the time. Here's what these people were doing at the time. Here's why this matters. This is why, here's why this is political commentary or cultural commentary or just really poignant, which you're not going to get unless you know, here's this list of facts. And Thompson is not the kind of writer who's going to hit you with a list of facts in order to make a poignant point. But when there's no longer any lived experience of that, when there's no longer any access to that, 
again, for you know the students, the successive generations of students I'll be teaching, you know that's that's something what I'm something of what I've been able to do here is to provide that context, to provide those sort of list of contextualizing relevant information so that they can get through a passage, they can get through the wave speech, they can get through some of the more esoteric moments in this book and say, aha, and preserve some of Thompson's artistry, yay on unto the ages. Well, with that. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, Dr. John Brick, thank you for joining us at Hunter Gatherers and giving us maybe the most perfect ending we've ever had. (laughs) We'll see. uh, We'll continue with a special series on the last Gonzo Fest, Gonzo Fest number 10 in Louisville, in our next episode. Southern gentleman hit the highway and gave us stories we could share of crooked schemes and shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that we were there.